Okay, so this morning we're in Psalm 80. Again, we're doing Summer of Psalms. It's just uh, kind of an easy way for us to get through the summer together without having to do a single book of the Bible or something where if people are in and out, which tends to happen in the summer and understandably so, uh, you're not missing much. So every week kind of stands on its own, but tethered to this book of Psalms. And so we, at the as a staff team, we just sort of plucked, plucked them out of a cup, literally. We actually just plucked them out of a cup. And so every week, it's going to be a different psalm that just got chosen by random, or maybe not random, but the Lord decided what we're preaching. So that's, that's good. Uh, so Psalm 80 is my, my text today. Um, again, I preached two weeks ago and preached a psalm of lament. This psalm is also a psalm of lament. So I guess God wants me to lament or something here. Um, but it's, it's a little bit more hopeful in, in uh, regards to where it takes us. And hope is, as I think, the, the prevailing theme of this psalm. It is the words not used in this psalm, the word hope, but that's what threads through this whole thing. And, and I think hope is missing in a lot of lives today and in a lot of churches today. And so when we think about that word hope, I, I think we need to define it, right? Because Hope, as we use that word, as we think about that word, when you hear that word, you're probably thinking, as I am, uh, well, wishful thinking probably comes to mind. Um, you know, crossing your fingers and just kind of hoping for the best, right? Like, that's, this is just sort of how we use the word. Um, but that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is different. Um, it is actually less rooted in just wishes or good thoughts or positivity, it's actually rooted in confidence. It's rooted in confidence that God is working in this world and is restoring a people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And so hope for Christians is not just vague um, notions of positive things coming to us, but it is confidence in the fact that God has saved and will continue to save and, and we can bank our lives on him. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that there is three virtues that are primary, faith, hope, and love. And then Paul says that the greatest of these is love because love never ends. And basically what we get at there is that faith and hope are vital in a fallen world but they will pass away someday. We won't need hope or faith when we're face-to-face with Jesus. That's just the reality. We need these in our life now, but we won't always. Love is what will remain forever, um, ultimately, of those three virtues that Paul mentions. And so when we talk about hope, we're, we're talking implicitly about um, difficult circumstances. If there weren't difficult circumstances, there'd, there'd be no need for hope. But because we live in a fallen world, we live in a sinful world, we ourselves are sinful people um, at the core. We, we need hope to anchor us to something bigger than ourselves or our circumstances. And so we're living in a time right now where I think this is so needed. And I think the psalm is perfect to help us get to this place because a lot of people are confused uh, and scared, if we're being honest. Um, some of us are worried about the direction of our country. Some of us are worried about the 
economic situation. Some of us are just worried about more personal family issues that are happening in our lives. There's a myriad of struggles that we face um, individually and nationally. We, we know this. And so because of this, it's, it's difficult for us to pivot our hearts to hope. And we need to, though. And we need to, especially when life is difficult. And, and that's what we see in this psalm. It's mixed with pain, but it's also mixed with a constant refrain of hope, which is, we're going to see it three times, this phrase, restore us, O God, restore us, O God. That is what they keep going back to as they acknowledge their hardships, as they acknowledge the hard things and the pain in their lives and what's gone on as a nation in Israel. They come back again and again, three different times to restore us, O God. Let your face shine. So there's hope in this. And we see, and we, what we'll see is that the hope uh, that we have to ultimately bank our lives on is Jesus. And this psalm takes us there. So let's look at it together. We're going to look at the first three verses first, and then we'll stop and, and talk about it. It says this, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So in this first refrain, uh, this first portion of the psalm, they are calling on God to hear them to hear their cries, to hear their need, to respond in prayer. This is a a prayer to God. Uh, As all, we said this two weeks ago when we talked about the Psalms of Lament, this is sort of a standard uh, process. Laments are prayers. They're prayers directed at God who can do something to help. And so again, this is similar. They're asking God to give ear, meaning listen to our cries, listen to our prayers. But notice how they address him, how they respond here. They, they call him the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel. This is a common theme throughout the Psalms and really in, throughout all of the, the Bible, but particularly the Old Testament. The people of Israel were shepherds. They came from a long line of shepherds, the patriarchs as we call them, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These, these patriarchs of Israel were shepherds. And, and so God embodied for them this, this idea of shepherding. And we know that David, King David, was a shepherd. We know uh, that Moses was a shepherd. Like they're, they're just a, this huge through line in the Old Testament uh, of shepherding. And, and so God takes on this, this analogy to be the shepherd of Israel and to be our shepherd. And and then, so they ask the shepherd of Israel to do something. They, they say, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. They mentioned Joseph in verse 1. And then Benjamin would have been Joseph's full brother from, um, from Rachel, his mother Rachel. So Jacob had two wives, bad already, right? But two wives, Leah, Rachel. Leah had a whole lot of kids. Rachel had Joseph and then later Benjamin. So here they're, they're actually drawing us back to kind of an un, unusual 
um, leader or uh, figure within Israel, and that's Joseph. Joseph is not typically brought out as the guy to look to. They talk about Moses a lot. They talk about Abraham, obviously, a lot. Um, but Joseph is kind of an, a minor character in the Old Testament. He's, he's in it. He's in the book of Genesis for a number of chapters, but he's not the primary figure. So it's interesting, and we'll talk about why that this matters here. Um, but they are asking God to come forward, to shine forth, to save them from their troubles and their problems. But let's talk about this idea of shepherding, because this is where I think we need to turn our hearts to if we're going to hold on to hope. And that is this, that we have a good shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ to lead us. Um, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We're told that Jesus actually is the true fulfillment of these things, of this, of this office, of this position of leader and shepherd of our souls. Jesus is the shepherd that we should be calling out to and asking him for help. But, but what's interesting here is that the, the psalm draws us back to this story of Joseph. And I don't think that's accidental. I actually think it's, it's vital because if you know the story of Joseph, you know that it was one of a great struggle and trial. Joseph was the, the youngest son at the time uh, until Benjamin was born. He was the youngest son uh, of a whole lot of brothers and they all resented him. They, they hated him, actually, because he was the favorite son. And uh, it's good to not play favorites with our children as much as um, we can, because this, this is what happens, is people get resentful and bitter. Um, and so the brothers that Joseph had were very bitter. They ended up going to such great lengths to get rid of him that they were going to murder him, but they chose instead to make some money off of him and so sell him into slavery. And then they faked his death, told their dad, he's dead, sorry. We found his clothes, it got torn up. Well, this, they just made this whole huge thing. Joseph then, meanwhile, is sent down to Egypt. He's brought into someone's house to work as a slave. He rises up through the ranks of the, of the household servants, becomes the leader of those household servants, but then is accused wrongly of something he didn't do and was thrown in prison. And he then rots away in jail for years and years for a crime he never committed. Um, this is a story that is brutal and terrible. And yet the Bible tells us in Gen Genesis that God never forgot Joseph. God was with Joseph through all of these things. And ultimately God saves him out of prison, brings him up, elevates him, to the leader, one of the, the second in command of the whole nation of Egypt, and then allows him to be used to preserve food during a famine so that his own family would be saved from starvation. It's an amazing story, but I think that the reason this psalm takes us there is because Joseph did not have the typical amazing life that we all think we should have where he just was like a rocket ship going higher and higher all the time. No, he dealt with incredible pain, adversity, suffering, and brokenness, but God led him through it all and took him to where he needed to be. So this is a callback to that. And, and they're reminding themselves that just as God shepherded Joseph through those terrible years, he will shepherd us. And we know that Jesus himself is that shepherd 
who came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, Jesus tells us a parable in Luke 15 of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one goes away, right? And that shepherd does, to our mind, something that really isn't super smart. He leaves the 99 other sheep alone in the open field to pursue the one who was lost. And he finds it and he brings it back. Jesus tells us that story to give us a demonstration of what God's grace is and says to us that we are those wandering, that wandering sheep that Jesus pursues and brings back to the fold, back to home, back to safety. And so here's the hope that we can find in this, that Jesus is our shepherd. It's this, that we can never wander too far to be found by Jesus. We wander all the time. We sang the song, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is, that is true of every one of us. We wander. We're prone to it. But the Lord Jesus, as our good shepherd, pursues us constantly, continually. We'd never wander too far away for Jesus to find us. And the other side of this is that we are not shouldering the burden of finding our way back home by ourselves. We get to, to be saved. We get to be redeemed and brought home by Jesus. This is why they can say, stir up your might in verse two of Psalm 80, stir up your might and come to save us. They're not, they're not saying give us the strength to save ourselves. They're pleading with God to stir up his might, his strength to come and be our Savior. And Jesus, of course, is the embodiment of this. Well, let's keep reading here. Let's continue on. We've got a few more things to look at. Um, they say in verse 4 through uh, 7, I believe it is here, uh, 4 through 6 actually we'll look at first. He says, O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. So here they're, they're acknowledging the, the sorrow that they're facing right now and they're facing the anger of the Lord because of their sinfulness, ultimately. Um, they, they have now been disciplined by the Lord and they're asking him, how long is this going to go on? When are you going to come and help us? Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So there's the second use of this refrain. And then they go into this. Look at 8 through uh, uh, 13. They say, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took a deep, you took, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all, the move, and all that move in the field feed on it. So here they're, they're using another analogy. They use the analogy first of a shepherd. It's common 
Here's another common analogy that's used throughout the scriptures. It's that of a vine. And Israel is describing themselves as a vine brought out of Egypt and planted in the land of Canaan. So they're talking here about God delivering them out of Egypt from uh, the Exodus story. They're reminding themselves of God's work there. And he brings them out of Egypt and he plants them in the land of Canaan. Now there was about 40 some years uh, where they wandered in the desert because of their disobedience. Uh, and God eventually then led them into the land. Well, then what happens? They are planted in the land um, for a good stretch of time, and then things start to go wrong again. Uh, they, are, they are describing their situation through this analogy of a vine. And they say, okay, first you took it out of Egypt and you planted it. You prepared the ground for it. That vine took deep root and then grew and filled the land and covered the land with shade. It was this beautiful thing that they're describing. And then he says, so they say to God, why then have you broken down the walls, taken away the protection? And that way now everybody who passes by can just pluck the fruit off this vine without having any right to do that. Or the boars or the other animals that move in the field will feed on this vine. So they're basically describing how they were a vine planted and now just to be destroyed. Well, here's the issue. Um, Israel describes itself as a vine, but they are not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. They, They were a faulty, flawed vine that God planted for a season and has then allowed to be Uh, plucked and dealt with. But we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is actually the true vine who plants, plants us and roots us in him. We see this in John chapter 15. Um, Let me just read a little bit of it. Um, Let me get there. A couple more pages here. Here we go. He says, John, Jesus is speaking in John 15. He says, I am the, the true vine. You hear that? The true vine. He's calling our attention back to these Old Testament pictures. Just as he does as a shepherd in John 10, he's now calling himself the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I was... As I was thinking about this analogy, I I came across a quote from a guy named Dane Ortland who has written some books. And here's what he says about this. I thought it was very helpful. He says, God was insistent that his people flourish, but they could never have done so if left to their own resources. They needed deep deliverance, not just from Egyptian captivity, but from sin's captivity. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he called himself the vine. In other words, he came to do what Israel failed to do. He came to spread the shade of his blessing far and wide. United to him by faith, 
we too become part of that life-giving vine and we bear fruit. He then asks this, do you feel forsaken as if you keep disappointing God? Consider what God has done for you in Christ. You are vitally connected to the life of heaven. Trust him, enjoy him, bear fruit. It's who you are now. And I think that's just so helpful to to reorient our, our minds as we read Old Testament imagery. We need to always be asking, how does Jesus fulfill this? If it was just left up to us, left up to our own devices, left up to our own uh, ingenuity, we would fail every time. But God, in his wisdom and beauty and might and power and all those things, came into the world as Jesus to be the true vine and the true shepherd that our hearts need. And so how does this anchor our hearts to hope? Right? If, if, if the idea of Jesus as a shepherd anchors us to hope because we can never wander too far to be found by him, This truth that Jesus is the vine, the true vine, uh, actually anchors us to hope because our ability to bear fruit does not come from us. Jesus produces the fruit in our lives. That is liberating. It is the liberation of the gospel that we don't have to muster the strength to be fruitful people. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We get the fruit because his life is flowing into us and through us. This is the question that the Apostle Paul asks in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Again, Galatians is an amazing book about how we can't save ourselves through our own efforts. But he goes so far even to say it's not just about salvation or the entrance into salvation. It's also about our sanctification. And here's what he asks. In verse, um, well, we'll just, three verse one, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, the answer is hearing with faith, right? He's asking this, this rhetorical question because they know the answer. They received the Spirit of God, meaning they received salvation because they heard and they believed. So he says this, are you so foolish? Having once begun by the Spirit, so your salvation is through the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is no. That's not how it works. and, And here's the thing. We have this disconnect, I think, in our minds of salvation. Yes, Jesus does that, but then I get to do all the rest. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what he's talking about there is bearing fruit, fruitfulness, growth in Christ. Apart from him, we can't do it. And so our hope is that the fruit that we produce in our lives as Christians doesn't come from us. Jesus grows it in us. As long as we're connected to him, we'll see fruit. That's liberating and that's hopeful. Okay, one more thing to to look at here. One more idea, concept, or analogy that's used. Look at verse 14 through 19. It says, Turn again, O God of hosts. 
Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burnt it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and call upon your name. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So now here's, a, here's another analogy that's used and really throughout the Old Testament. Again, it's the idea of being the son of man. And what he says in this passage is that, that they, want, they want God to address them and put, their, put his hand on them as if they are this son of man who has been made strong. Well, here's the thing. They can't be this, and we can't be this. We're never going to be strong enough to, to carry this, this weight. But the good news for us is this, that Jesus was truly the son of God and son of man. So it makes Jesus wholly unique. He uses the phrase son of man to describe himself. It's actually one of his favorite, Jesus's favorite analogies for himself or descriptors. He, he's both the son of God and the son of man. And so Jesus is the one who is strong for us. If you turn to John chapter 3, we see this is the, the common thing that Jesus talks about is this idea of being the son of man. Right in the middle of some of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, Jesus is using this idea of the son of man. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's explaining to this Pharisee what it means to be saved. And here in verse 14, he begins to explain Verse 13, actually, let's back up to there. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, so hear what Jesus is saying. He says, No one's been up to heaven except for one person who is the Son of Man who then descended to come to earth. And that's, he's talking about himself. Right? So he, he's saying that there's, there's no one who's ascended into heaven from earth up that way at this point who is now, except for the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's referring there to that title. And then he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
So again, Jesus is using this analogy of being the son of man who is sent from heaven to be strong to save us. But how was he strong to save us? It's, it's counterintuitive. It's upside down. He was crucified in weakness to display his strength. He was lifted up so that all of us would be drawn in to him. Right? And so here's, here's the good news. Here's the hope. We, we don't have to be the strong ones because Jesus was strong for us. He was lifted up from the earth on the cross. He was then placed into the grave and then he was resurrected from, the life, from life, uh, death into life so that we can rest in his strength. We see this also being the main point Jesus makes back in Luke uh, 15 as well, right? He tells the story of this sheep that's lost, but in that same chapter, he tells another story, a longer story. One of his longest parables is the parable of the prodigal son. At least that's what we call it. And it's actually probably not the best name choice or title for it. You know, we, we came up with those titles. They're not actually in the scriptures that way. But Jesus tells this story of a, of a young man who takes his inheritance early before his father dies. He walks away from his family. He lives a life of just lostness, um, recklessness, foolishness. That's why we call it the prodigal son. And, and the whole time, though, this is the thing, is we focus so much, we, we zone in so much on that younger son that we actually miss the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that there were two sons, an older and a younger. And the younger son runs off and leaves home and, and goes and lives a crazy life. The older son, what's he doing? He's just hanging back. He's just working at home. He's just doing his thing. He's just kind of rejecting his brother. The father, meanwhile, is watching from the house to see when his son will return. But you got to understand the culture of that time. It's important to get it, that it would have been the responsibility of the older son to go and find this, this lost son and bring him home. And he didn't. That's the point of the parable because he's speaking to the, the Pharisees and he's basically saying, you're the older son that have neglected the lost. That's the whole thing. And I love it because here's the point. Jesus is the true son who goes to find the lost ones. Jesus is the son that, that the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel should have been but weren't because they didn't have the capability. So God sends his own son, his only son, into this world to find the lost. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we, that's why we cling to Jesus and not to ourselves or to any other human being for our, for our salvation. Jesus is the hero of the prodigal son story. That's the point. The, the, the leaders of Israel were, were derelict in their responsibility, but Jesus was not. He came to find the lost, and you and I are those lost children. So in all of this, as we look at Psalm 80, we, we see that Jesus is so much for us. He is our good shepherd who leads us. He is the vine that we are bearing fruit through. He is the, the son of man who came to save us from our sins. He's all of this. He's so much more than these things, but he's not less than these things. But I just want to spend a little time talking to you tonight, today rather, about 
how we sabotage our own hopefulness. Because we can, and we do. These three truths, that Jesus is our leader, that Jesus is our fruit bearer, that Jesus is the son of man to come and save us, these things can anchor us to hope now and eternally. But listen, we can sabotage this. And the way that we do it is so often through catastrophizing. You know what I mean by that? It's a fancy word, but catastrophizing is when we fixate on the worst case scenario rather than on Christ. We do this all the time. We do this through um, just absorbing all of the bad news and not inputting any of the good news. We do this by just letting our minds run amok and go, man, it's just all terrible. Everything's awful. And we just see everything as a catastrophe. And everyone does this. Everyone, left, right, center, politically, we all do this. Every one of us, regardless of where you land on any of that stuff, we're all prone to seeing the worst in the situation. And I think this is one of the key ways that we can sabotage hope in our hearts. We, we do this by buying into conspiracies that may or may not be there, right? Like, now I love a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy, okay? I do. I enjoy them. I find them to be entertaining. And, uh, and here's the thing, though. It's one thing to go, hmm, I wonder if we landed on the moon. And just think about some of those things, right? It's, that's one thing. That's, that's fine. Like, whatever. Think about whatever you want, right? Question things. That's different, though, inherently than upending your entire life to build some bunker somewhere and stockpile things and get ready for doomsday and plan violence because you're so over it. Like, that's obviously a different category. And we know that. We know that. Intuitively, we understand these are different things. But here's the thing. If we allow ourselves to just go down into despair rather than up into Christ, we're going to inevitably get there. In some way or shape or form, right? It doesn't always manifest the same for everybody. But, but these, these things of catastrophizing and buying into every conspiracy that we hear, I, I really do believe this. They, they are a form of pride. It's a form of pride because we, we think we're smarter than everybody else. We just go, oh, look at all these sheeple. They don't know what they're doing. I know the truth. It also feeds into our fears, because we think that the worst thing that could happen is going to happen. And it displays a lack of hope in, in God. Here's the thing. We, we know that we have a, a gospel, a good news through Jesus. We know that intuitively. We understand it. We've heard the preaching. We understand the Bible. Okay, but then our, the way we respond to these things contradicts that belief that we have a sovereign God in heaven. We say we do, we seem to believe we do, but then there's some disconnect between that and how we actually live. And I came across a, a quote, a short quote from Larry Osborne, who, who wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. It's a great book. I'd recommend you read it. Crystal and I joke about buying just a backpack worth of them and just handing them out to everyone we meet because it's such a good book, especially in the times we live in. But here's one of the things he says in there. He says, catastrophizing 
kills our hope and feeds our fear. We may talk as if we trust in Jesus, but if we, uh, if we live most of our lives in a state of fear and worry, it's an empty cliche. When we fall prey to catastrophizing, we not only end up worrying about things that are highly unlikely to happen, but we also forget that even if they did happen, God would still be with us. There's so much more I could say on that, and I don't, I, I'm not going to today. I mean, I wish, I wish I could, but I don't have the time. So here's the thing. We need to recognize that there is something called garbage in, garbage out. And I'm just trying to help you think about this because if we're inputting all of the negativity of the world, which is basically everything on the news, everything on talk radio, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter because it's just like they are feeding off of your fear. It's what they do. It's how they make their money. It is. It's how they make their money. And so by us tuning into all of this and absorbing all of it, we're going to be tempted towards catastrophizing. Because here's the thing. If you turned on the news and every single day they told you in a nice calm voice, Jesus is king. It's okay. We're going to be fine. You wouldn't watch the news anymore. Why do you need the news to tell you that? You, you have your Bible to tell you that. But you turn into the news and so do I. I'm, not, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, you guys. I'm not trying to be high and mighty here. We're all, we're all prone to this, where we tune in because we're going, oh my gosh, what is, what's the next thing that's happened here? And you got all the bells and the, the red lights and all the things, and it's, it's meant to feed into your fears. But the Bible tells us something different, right? Psalm, Psalm 80 tells us something different, that even when life is terribly difficult, we have a God who will restore us. We have a God who will come down from heaven and save us. And we know this God has already done so in Jesus. So some of us might need to just go, go cold turkey on this stuff and cut out all that junk. I don't know what you need to do. That might be something you need to do. But here's what I know all of us need to do. We all need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the way that we do that is to get into the Bible and let the Bible be the good news we need. We need, some of us will need to get off social media for a season, uh, probably forever, but, you know, um, at least a season. Some of us may need to stop listening to talk radio. Some of us might need to stop searching YouTube for all of the, the quick little sound bites that'll freak you out. I mean, we need to be wise about these things and start adapting to what we need to do. And I'm not trying to be heavy-handed on this. I don't know exactly what you need. But these are some things that you might want to Im implement in your life because we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so let me read a quick quote for you and then we'll close. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He's always going to get us to where we need to go. So <laughs> let's, let's let him speak here to us. And this is his commentary on Psalm 80. He says, under the leadership of the one whom God has chosen, uh, whom, whom God had chosen, the nation would be kept faithful. Grace would work in gratitude and so cement them to their allegiance. It is in Christ that we abide faithful. Because he lives, we live also. 
There is no hope of our preservation apart from him. Quicken us and we will call upon your name. If the Lord gives life out of death, his praise is sure to follow. The Lord Jesus is such a leader that in him is life and the life is the light of men. He is our life. And when he visits our souls anew, we will be revived. And our praise shall ascend unto the name of the triune God. No matter what you're going through today, Jesus is the leader that you need. He will take you to where you need to go. We just need to follow him. And sometimes we we just so desperately want our circumstances to change. That might be what God has for us, but it might not be. And we need to trust him and let him lead us. What we need fundamentally is not better political leaders, although that would be nice. I agree. What we need ultimately is Jesus to lead us and to shepherd us, to make us fruitful as we're united to him and to give us what he has offered us in the forgiveness of sin, which we cannot do for ourselves. Let's anchor ourselves to hope today. Let's trust him. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have sent your son into this world to be our shepherd, our vine, our son of man. I pray that you would help us now as we all are in this room with different things, different struggles, different worries. Would you secure us and seal us in you? Would you help us to know that our, our lives are, are meant to be united to yours? and not to our fears, and not to our catastrophizing, but to you. Would you give us grace today, Lord, to move forward where we need to go? And we pray it in your son's name. Amen.